do what you say you're going to do. Um, find the meaning in what you do, and the money will follow. And then the whole idea that once you take a dime of money from anybody, you now have a boss. Money is not the solution to successful companies. Doing what you say you're going to do and being a good communicator and learning from your mistakes so that you move forward having learned from those mistakes is what I think leads to a successful company is some humbleness on the part of the founders that they're not always going to know the right answer. Hi, Janice. Hi. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you for taking time out to do this interview. Sure, my pleasure. Can you um, just introduce yourself and give, give a little background um, on who you are and what you do? Sure. So, um, I'm Janice Mashala, and I'm the Executive Dean for Continuing Education at Bellevue College. And what that means is uh, the non-credit offerings. That's everything from a cognitively disabled program um, all the way up through seniors, uh, teaching seniors a Telos program called Telos. And I think of it as lifelong learning and mid-career professional training and retraining. What did you want to do growing up? I was always going to be a doctor. That was kind of the path I was on. I went to, in high school and did a nurse's aid job and you know, it was everything, kind of science and math. When I got to college, um, the upper level science courses really tripped me up. And I realized that maybe I wasn't cut out for that. And so I started exploring and hit on psychology uh, because I loved interacting with people. I'm very extroverted, outgoing. And because I love to read English. So I did a double major in psych and English, which uh -huh. is a great preparation as it turns out for life. Yeah. And I never thought of myself as a business person. So I started out in a PhD program in English. Um, and came to the conclusion during the time when the humanities were really uh, floundering and people didn't get jobs, they didn't get assistantships, and I was really unhappy. And a friend of mine said, you should have talked to the business school. And I had had not a single accounting class, not a single finance class, and I thought, why? And she said, well, there's a woman dean, and they would love to get more women into the MBA program. And I thought, well, what the heck? Went to talk to her. Within 10 minutes, she said, oh, statistics, you could teach statistics. And I went, uh, yeah, I guess I could teach statistics. And so she gave me a full assistantship, recruited me into the program, didn't know what my area of focus would be, and I just hit on marketing. And I think part of it is the data-driven nature of it, the customer intimacy part of it, and I really loved the kind of complexities that you get in the marketing field. Yeah. So how did you get into technology? What was that path like? Um, I originally started out um, in the college textbook publishing industry. And what I was doing was market research and was really um, at the very early forefront of analyzing data to make books that were more successful. I ended up at a publisher in the, mid, in, um, the Midwest, a family-owned business, and basically I got to be an entrepreneur. This was a company we took from 25 to $100 million over a two and a half year period. And then I got recruited to a publisher in the Midwest, uh, in the Boston actually, called Addison Wesley, which had a lot of computer science and science books. That was in the days when CD-ROMs were starting to appear. 
and nobody knew what to do with software or with CD-ROMs. And I was young, naive, didn't have anything to lose, and I said, well, I'll help out here, or I'll do that. And I found that making things up where there hasn't been a hundred year history, and I'm not told it's always been done this way, is much more my style. And when I was spending more time on the software offerings and the CD-ROM offerings, I realized that the technology field was probably a great place for me, and so I started out actually in product management at a big company in those days, 30,000 employees and many billions of dollars in revenue that doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. Wang Laboratories, this is during the heyday of the mini-computer era. Okay. And I ultimately ran the office systems group, and again, the things I gravitated towards were what I would call intrapreneurial, starting 1.0 products, starting joint ventures that, what we did, for example, uh, the first version of um, Westlaw on CD-ROM integrated with Wangword processing. Uh, so that's where I got hooked on the technology side of the world. So you've worked at some large companies, mm -hmm. like yeah. Sun, mm -hmm. and Microsoft. You've, you've worked at tiny companies mm -hmm. and startups. What do you see different today about technology startups? Like, different today than, than when you first oh. were, were involved? Well, it takes a lot less to get a technology company off the ground. With the cloud, with storage being close to free, not, not totally free, but close to free, um, with the robustness of the development tools that exist, I mean, you can just do so much with so little. Um, but that's a blessing and a curse, because it means that there's a gazillion apps that you're yeah. competing with. So it's the barriers to entry in technology are just not there the way they used to be. So the speed of the life cycle of a technology company, I think, is got a much faster half-life than it did in the early days of startups. I mean, if you talk to um, an entrepreneur today, you know, they are competing with the big companies, the Amazons and the Microsofts, but they're also competing with a local office of Salesforce.com and a local office of Facebook and a local office of Yahoo and a local office of eBay. Everybody's seeing this amazing talent pool that we have and said, well, we want some of that Microsoft talent and we want some of that Amazon talent. It is the passionate, I believe in what I'm doing at all cost. I want people who are going to sign up for my cause. Mm -hmm. It's almost become an evangelical sale to get the kind of talent that you need. Yeah. So few people take a job for salary. Most people take a job because they believe in what that company's doing. Yeah. And how do I rise above the noise? Founders need to understand that they have to market to their talent in a ways that they didn't have to in the past. Do you think there's going to be a culture kind of bubble, like where there's there's not enough massages and ballet <laughs> and dry cleaning that can, you know, there's going to be too much and everyone's competing and then there's not enough money to go around? I think that's a real risk. I think that's a real risk. Um, because how much do you really put into all of those things when money is not the motivator for employees? It really is the team that I've developed. So getting into that escalating, I have to do more, I have to give more, I have to have not just the ping pong table and the foosball table and the pool table and the jukebox and I think you have to know in your heart what makes a difference for you. The companies that have pushed back on that, I mean, Amazon's pretty frugal, right? They have a culture of frugality. 
it doesn't stop them from recruiting talent. No. There is a race to the top uh, danger that you can get into if you think that's why people take jobs. The talent pool is getting kind of thin, mm -hmm. and you're in education. Mm -hmm. what, what do you see? Do you see any trends happening, or what, what, what's the future look like for for our talent in you know, 5, 10, 20 years? Education is going to become more bite-size oriented, more on the go. You're going to see things like they call it a flipped classroom. And what that means is the teacher isn't going to get up there and lecture. The lecture is going to be online. You're expected to have looked at the lecture. And the classroom is going to be project-based, team-oriented, interaction-oriented, solving problems-oriented. It will give better socialization skills, better um, emotional intelligence skills, and better critical thinking skills to this next generation of people as the classroom experience evolves. In your opinion, how is, how is technology uh, changing education? I believe that not only are we going to have this integrated offline, online world, but there's going to be some fundamental analytics and big data elements that are going to allow us to have early warning signals for students who were losing in one way, shape, or form, or concepts that they don't get. And we can actually look and surgically say, here's something they missed. And it's in the foundation. It's not on the first floor or the second floor of a house. Um, and you're going to see, I believe, the Gates Foundation and their student success orientation come up with uh, models for how a K through sixth grader uh, pathway looks, how a middle school pathway should look, and how we help those students engage in new ways. And whether that's project-based learning, whether that's cool robotics models. I saw this whole set of kits that was on sale at Amazon over the holidays, and they're basically build a circuit board, build a, uh, a robot. It's all of these kind of slash consumer slash electro cool um, building things for budding entrepreneurs. And yet, fifth and sixth graders can do it. So we're starting to say, here's technology, here's robotics that we were spending millions of dollars in a manufacturing floor, and now we can teach it to third, fourth, fifth graders. So I think technology is going to radically change education in its experiential and its ability to teach to the modalities. Everybody learns differently. There's a bunch of different learning styles, and that's been proven. So giving those learning styles uh, to the people that need them in whichever way they need them, and then letting the teacher do what they're really good at, which is helping get through the roadblocks and helping inspire, I think will really change education. So you're going to see, start, start to see amazing things coming out. You're going to start seeing that in many different disciplines. Like, how do I apply math? I think one of the problems with kids is they don't see its relevance. So if we can give them simulations and things that suddenly geometry makes sense because it does this, this, and this, calculus makes sense because it does this, this, and this, you are going to now get really impactful learning. Gamification also, oh, yeah. because we've raised this video game generation. And so how do you make a game out of certain things? And I think that's what Dreambox Learning did in its you know, sort of kindergarten, first, second, third grade materials. So you're going to see 
reading systems reinvented, you're going to see math reinvented, you're going to see science reinvented. And you're going to have online mentoring, you're going to have peer mentoring, and all those volunteers are retired people who have a lot of years ahead of them. I mean, retirement age in the 60s, with lifespan that's 100, mm -hmm. you've got a whole group of people who have a lot of things that they've learned that they can bring back to that educational arena. Yeah. So I think there's going to be some really cool stuff that evolves. Do you have any, any recommendations for the folks watching that you know work 60, 80 plus hours and you know, need to sharpen their skills? It is very hard when you're doing those kinds of jobs to go home, have dinner, get online, start studying. I think people have to know themselves and say, am I motivated in that environment? Can I make progress in that way? I think you're going to see a lot of drop-off rates. One of the mm -hmm. things that we noticed in our classroom continuing education is that people build friendships, they build teams, they help each other. So there's a team dynamic that they're still trying to figure out in the online world. People need to be really clear when then they're in, the, they're in those kinds of jobs. What do I want out of this? Right? What do I want out of this? Do I want a better job? Do I want more money? Do I want to change careers? Mm -hmm. And focus maniacally on that thing or things that they want so that it's not just about the course, but it's about the outcome that comes from that course. If you were to go back to the start of your career, mm -hmm. what, would you, what advice would you tell yourself? Oh, uh, listen more, talk less. Mm -hmm. Extroverts have this tendency to fill up a room. I was the kid in the front row raising her hand to answer the questions. And you learn that you learn more by hearing um, what the needs are as opposed to assuming what the needs are. And then I would have sought out more mentorship. Um, I happened to be lucky. I had some amazing bosses along the way. But I didn't have that woman CEO or that woman a vice president who could have counseled me about working in a very male-dominated industry. I never thought about it that way, whereas maybe I should have. What do you think your the biggest lesson learned in your career was? Be willing to take calculated risks. I think the reason that I did so well in my career is I was willing to raise my hand and take on an assignment that didn't have a known outcome. And I was willing to jump in and learn about something and not accept status quo. Mm -hmm. I think that that newness and that not knowing where it's going is a little bit of an adrenaline high. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I became that adrenaline junkie for that new thing, that new initiative, that new program. And I was incredibly fortunate to have found companies that supported me in that way and gave me the latitude. Not every company will, and therefore, you've got to learn to advocate for yourself. How do you stay organized and on top of things? Mm. You, you're, you're very busy. Mm -hmm. um, you're on boards and mm -hmm. how do you have, ever, have you ever heard that phrase, when you, want, when you want something done, give it to a busy person? Yes, I have. Okay, I'm one of those. I think I do best when I have a lot to juggle. Mm. I don't touch paper or email very many times. So if I can't act on it quickly, I sort it and put it into a priority queue so that I know 
here's my A things, because I think we have a tendency to want to work on the C things, which are the easy things and the things that aren't going to move the needle. And so I try every day to think about what's that one big thing I need to have accomplished today and not let the little things get in the way. And then I stack things up. I've got my, my plane travel pile. I've got my do over the weekend pile. Um, there's always things that somehow get spilled into the weekend when you're in an executive role. And so I try and save those weekends, not for the busy work, but for something that will get, I, I use the quiet time for so that I can make real progress against it. And then Sunday nights, usually my organization night, um, where I just take a little time to look at my week and think about what I have to do at home to make sure that I'm not kind of going crazy in both places. Do you end up doing the C things? Or are they just, are you able to filter that out where this is, this is noise, this is noise? Or are they actionable? Some of, the, some of the C things never get done. Some of the C things I pass off to my assistant. Some of the C things I pass off to my team. And I try and address the really quick, give them an answer, read this document, get back to them by tomorrow, kinds of things on a fairly um, fast-paced basis. Okay. But no, it does not all get done. Or yes, it all gets done. It doesn't all get done. What are three key factors you feel an early stage tech company must have to succeed? A great user experience, a great whole product experience, something that really allows them to stand out from the crowd, a maniacal customer experience. The challenge of that is that developers often will fall into the feature trap and they think it's putting more features in when in fact it's much harder to make something much easier. The role of the founders and CEO is fundraising. You gotta keep enough money in the coffers. And you really have two jobs. One is moving the business ahead, and the other is moving ahead on finding the right partners to capitalize the company. And founders oftentimes gravitate towards one or the other, and they really have to do both. And then the whole idea that once you take a dime of money from anybody, you now have a boss. Money is not the solution to successful companies. Doing what you say you're going to do and being a good communicator and learning from your mistakes so that you move forward having learned from those mistakes is what I think leads to a successful company is some humbleness on the part of the founders that they're not always going to know the right answer. Do you have any advice for um, folks at larger companies? Like, how do they, uh, how do they, kind of have keep that startupy vibe mm -hmm. and culture when you're working at a, a big company? There are subcultures in large companies, and deciding what you want your subculture to be, I think, is really important. I've seen many incubators, accelerators in big companies fail, and I think the system does them in in some way. I think Xbox did that really well yeah. in its early days. And I think Connect did that really well in its early days. I think Valve has done that amazingly well, right? I mean, they have a very unique culture, no job titles, no hierarchies of responsibility, and yet they're a very big company. Yeah. Uh, so the legacy companies have to be willing to kind of um, disintermediate themselves 
not always is the leadership up for that. So knowing when to pick your battles around which of those things you do, if I win. But there's also, you know, just there are startup people in big companies. So I'm very leery as a startup CEO when I see a big company resume until I find out that they've always been the 1.0 product person or they've launched the new field programs. They've done something that shows that they can do a lot with a little resource, that they don't have to have big name company on their business card or that they're leveraging some senior executive with a huge Rolodex to make what they had to happen, happen. So you can find those people who are the outliers of the, those organizations. I also think, though, that there's nothing like stepping out of that environment. Um, when young people come to me to say, you know, should I go into a startup right out of school? I usually say no. And I say no because you don't have any background by which you can judge um, what does a good financial model look like? How do you do a marketing plan? All of the things that I learned in running businesses and large corporations, I could then put to use in a small company. And if you start out in small companies, it's really hard to go back and re-become a large company person because it's just so different. It's very adrenaline oriented, it's very move the needle in a big way. And you're not going to see the needle move in a larger corporation, but that's a great learning environment. And why not have them invest in you? Yeah. Is there a technology you would eliminate if you could? Gas-powered car, gas-powered vehicle. Okay. Do you think um, we're going to have a big player in that? Do you think it's Tesla or Ford or? I think Ford is one to watch because of who runs that company and what they've been able to do. They've taken a lot of the Volvo technology and moved it into their line of cars. I have a bunch of people I know who are buying the four-door Tesla, and I think the price will come down as the volume goes up, and those are wickedly cool cars. One of the trends I actually see happening in the young, younger population is they're not buying properties, they're renting, and they don't have cars. They're, it, we're re-urbanizing. People want to walk. There's a whole nother level of, I don't need a car at all. Maybe I need a car to share, or maybe I need a flex car, or maybe I need this new rental service, um, which is, you know, time-sliced car. Uh, and so I think there's going to be lots of different evolutions around that. And who are two people you'd like to see on NextCast? Sal Khan from Khan Academy. I don't know if you've done Rich Barton yet. Nope. He would be awesome because there's so many lessons from him in having been in the big company, spun out a startup that turned into a public company, and now him having his own little karetsu of companies that he gets started. And look at Zillow, you know, where we are. So he has so many lessons to share. Oh, that'd be great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time out. You're welcome. And I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks.